Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We've got wise words from philosopher Stephen Trombley and then a catch-up with Johan Hari on the paperback release of his book Chasing the Screen. Stephen Trombley is a writer, editor and Emmy award-winning filmmaker. He collaborated with Alan Bullock on the second edition of the Fontana Dictionary of Modern Thought and was editor of the new Fontana Dictionary of Modern Thought. His books include The Execution Protocol, All That Summer She Was Mad, Virginia Woolf and Her Doctors, and more recently, 50 Thinkers Who Shaped the Modern World and A History of Western Thought, both of which we've talked about in the past on Little Atoms. And we're going to be talking about Stephen's new book today, which is Wise Words, The Philosophy of Everyday Life. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Good to see you, Neil. What's the idea behind this book? Well, you know, I love that Richard Milbank is my editor. He was my editor at uh, Atlantic Books and now moved ahead of Zeus. And before I can think of a book to write, he, he gets me on the phone and says, I know, why don't you write a book about this? So he, he phoned me one day and said, what if we made a miscellany of philosophy? I don't know what we'll call it, but you would pick maybe 50 things about which philosophers had something to say. And so I said, you know, like, what, haircuts or backbiting or God? He said, yes, just like that. And, of course, I, I, I was joking. He said, no, I mean it. I uh, said, I want you to pick things that people might have a question about and see if you can find philosophers who express, in a way that any of us can understand, in plain language, some thought about that thing that might not only entertain us, but give us some idea of how philosophy could be useful. Like, you know, what does that mean to me? Does philosophy help? Is it practical? Or is it just a funny intellectual exercise that only eggheads could understand? So that was the brief. This type of book, of course, means that you can put what you like in it fundamentally. It doesn't, you don't have any sort of need to be definitive. But did you have some sort of guiding principles into what, in what went in? Yeah, it does mean, a miscellany means you can do what you like. If you made an anthology, which is different from miscellany in this way, you kind of have to conform to what's already laid out. And you'd have to include all of the big names. And if you didn't include one, reviewers would let you know and be very angry with you and, and tell you you're a, a sort of a nut job and a pretender. But since I am a nut job and a pretender, miscellany is perfect for me because I can pick whatever I want. But I did have some rules in mind. I thought, let's think about stuff that does matter to people. 
we all care about how we're governed. We care about our rulers. So what have philosophers had to say about that? We care about things like friendship. It matters very much to us. And for most of us, that's like the most important stuff in our lives. But they can be complicated. You know, there's, there's no givens. And so philosophers have said much about that. Sex. We're all interested in that. And there's plenty to be said. War. I mean, we have to be very interested, really more like worried about that, because that's the sort of constant state of, of, of being that we live in. So there are all these things from small things to big things that concern us from time to time, that philosophers do have something to say about it. And the thing is that in the, the method, if you like, <laughs> so I picked stuff that I thought was important and that I know that other people think is important. But I tried to find, and this was the hard part, philosophers speaking in plain language to us. And you know, people like Hegel or Husserl or, you know, people like Sartre are not famous for plain talk. English philosophers are, you know, Hume is... But they did make plain statements. I just had to hunt for them. Well, we're going to come back to those guys a bit later on in the show. I want to go through a few of the subjects that you look at mm. in the book then. And we'll start off with one that you've already mentioned, which is ageing, which is something that comes to mm. us all. It's an important one. I think I start that one off not speaking so much about the past, but I think I bring in, I don't know, because it's months since I wrote this thing and I never read it again, but I bring in... Simone de Beauvoir, who has a book on aging, but also has charted her life and Sartre as they went along all the time. And she sees aging as a further, if you like, condemning one to being the other. You are excluded. You are put in a category of age, of old, as if you need treating specially like a child or put away in some place. And if you're a woman, all your life you've had to fight for acknowledgement of your existence and your power, and now you are finally put in the position of a toddler, you know, and, and, and stored away somewhere. So she was very angry about how we as a society treat old people who, you know, whom she considered to be, actually as we are, still the same people trying to achieve our goals, trying to be what we will, but increasingly less able to realize them because we all are infirmed in some point as we get older. Our minds are not as sharp, look at me, you know, as they were when you're younger and your body is also less, you know, so it's a horrible situation to think about. But the classics, I mean, Plato looked at the elderly as really a beautiful gift. These are people who are more fit to govern than a young person. And we say a young man because women weren't governing in Plato's democracy. And I would say that's true. I mean, look at Boris Johnson. How old is he? 30-something? No, older than that. Well, he's years? not old enough to govern, all right? Let me tell you that. He never will, will he? No, he never will. And look, you're a man, I'm a man. We all until we're about 45, don't even know how to understand to comport our own selves in our own relationships. Mm -hmm. And so how are you going to let a 25-year-old man be in charge of everyone else? You would have to be out of your mind. But we do that regularly. 
Plato thought so too. He thought when you are 50, 60, you begin to understand your passions are cooler. Mm -hmm. You're not so ruled by testosterone and, you know, avarice and, you know, the desire, the corrupt desire for power. You're able to see things more clearly, more importantly, from other people's point of view, from the point of view of people less fortunate than yourself, other than yourself by race or age or, or anything. And so you are just better at it. I'm about six weeks off of my 45th birthday, so well, things are going to start getting good for me. You're going to start being very clever and very sharp in about <laughs> ten years. There's no doubt. Philosophy itself seems to be uh, healthy, and um, particularly the ancient philosophers all lived much longer than everybody else. That, to me, was one of the most... Well, it should be obvious, but it wasn't to me. In the ancient Greek world, when Plato and others were going about their business, you have to remember that only about a quarter of Greeks were free men. The rest were slaves, you know, or they were uh, lion feed, you know, they were, they were gladiators. Uh, and we know, we know this from Engels, you know, the condition of the working class in Manchester. We, we just know this if we're at all awake about things, that life expectancy is linked very closely to prosperity. If you are poor, you probably have a poor diet. You probably live in poor conditions which are conducive to disease. You will probably die younger. Statistically, you will. But in the case of ancient Greek philosophers, now you say, you think only 25% of ancient Greeks are free men, and among them, only a tiny portion are philosophers. But these guys live to be 70 and up to 90 regularly. There's a list of them in, in the book. And it is the case that if you're going to be a philosopher, if you're going to do philosophy, you need leisure time. And you need a specific type of leisure time. If you are very poor in the ancient world, you don't have any light to read by except during daylight hours. You don't have a Kindle. You don't have a book because they have not been invented yet. You know, you have tablets. But who's going to give a tablet to a slave to read? Mm -hmm. Nobody. So the only knowledge you have as a, uh, as a non-free person is what you gather by observation, but no one is going to give you the free time to write it down or the materials to do it by, and you're not going to have an audience. So philosophy is, it starts out as a rich man's game, and it starts out as a rich man's game by the controlling dominant race and ethnicity. So, you know, in our culture, it's a white man's game. In their culture, it's that. And that has almost not changed to today mm -hmm. because, you know, jumping ahead in the book to uh, there's a chapter on race. The percentage of non-white philosophy professors in this country is absurd. I mean, it's a tiny percentage that and enough will show you. And the number of students doing PhDs, it is still almost exclusively a white man's game. And I would add to that white men of a certain class. There are, you know, there are exceptions all the time, like your good self and like my good self, of people who come from modest backgrounds who decide, no, I want that. I want knowledge. I'm going to read. I'm going to learn this stuff. And I'm not only going to learn it, but I'm going to master it. And I'm not only going to master it, but I'm going to beat up the other people mm -hmm. doing it. That's like we're point zero zero one. And that continues to this day and is a problem. And, you know, there are more women philosophers than before, but not that many. And so many of them are the disciples of a, a, an important white male who's dead. Mm -hmm. So that whole thing of, I think it is a, a question of, 
I mean, it's what socialism addresses. It's the question of your birth and background and your position that enables you to have enough power to learn and then to teach. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Stephen Trombley. We're talking about his book, Wise Words, The Philosophy of Everyday Life. And Stephen, moving on to another subject, there's a a few things in this book that seem to be in there almost for, for comic effect, in that they're things that... A philosopher doesn't seem to have a better opinion of than a, a madman in the street, quite frankly. So I want to talk about their opinion of extraterrestrials, the extra- which is great fun. <laughs> it's, you know, the whole question of extraterrestrials is, I think, by its nature, fun. And everyone's entitled to their opinion. And, of course, if you start with opinions that we might form today, of course they're informed by very powerful telescopes that can look into our universe, you know, a pretty long way. And, you know, we can measure microwaves. And we have mathematical models that can predict all kinds of things. But the earliest thoughts about extraterrestrials are based on observations of the naked eye and of thinking, of braining out, again, on a cocktail napkin, but without benefit of pencil, you know, what there might be. And so you have people like Kant talking about the beginning of the universe. And he basically, without any real scientific information on which, you know, no empirical information on which to base his claim, came up with a theory, which is pretty much the theory of the Big Bang, without the numbers attached, without the maths, which is extraordinary, because, you know, there's a Frenchman called Laplace who uh, supplemented this theory later on, but it still remains the guiding model. How did he know to do that? Who knows? But more than that, he had thoughts about what kind of beings Mm -hmm. existed and, you know, which ones were cleverest and which were stupid, you know, and where they belonged in the universe and by which possible planet. We have an English vicar whose name I can't recall without looking in, he's mentioned just once, who talks about the moon and its inhabitants and speculations on their sex organs, about their capacity to enjoy music or not. All of these things that we might, uh, you know, ascribe to ourselves. And it's very interesting that as we talk about aliens from the earliest times to Steven Spielberg, as with so many things, we tend to anthropomorphize them. Mm-hmm. We are thought of aliens, you know, from thousands of years ago and today tends to be a picture of some sort of creature who looks like a slightly deformed version of ourselves, which is odd because, you know, if there are aliens, uh, they may look completely different, you know. They may not even have extension. Perhaps they don't even have a body. Perhaps mm-hmm. they are, you know, spirits. Uh, well, that, that's interesting that you said that because I think, was it Lucretius who said that, you know, they're like us but they don't go to the bathroom or something? That's right. Aliens do not pee. Right? I don't know if they do or not. But then they become much like angels, which is the other supernatural 
uh, being that, uh, you know, is sometimes mentioned in the book. And it's the reason why scholastic logic is, in my view, flawed. The methods may be great, but they still come up with a proof, a so-called proof of angels, you know, beings without extension that are just, you know, some kind of vaporous goodness, you know, all in support of a God uh, who supervises hell to which we're condemned uh, by this loving being if we don't believe. But also, I think I think you talk about Thomas Aquinas and, and this idea that his idea was, well, there can't be aliens, there can't be beings on other planets because God made us all and Jesus saved us and therefore if they can't experience the love of Jesus they can't be saved therefore it can't exist and for his time and thinking I think that's a pretty solid argument it's an interesting one because if you follow the logic of first of all what he was aware of which is ourselves and some chickens and some donkeys you know plus the blessed virgin and the manger and, and everybody else and donkeys and kings there couldn't be anyone else and the fact that Jesus was sent specifically to either say, well, to attempt to save us if we resisted, we were condemned. It's hard to ask him perhaps to imagine more than that. Although it would only, I mean, I agree with you that given what he knew, I'm not going to, it is a position that you wouldn't object to someone taking. It makes sense. However, the lack of imagination in believing that a God who is all powerful only made us. If you look at the diversity of men and women on our planet, I mean, different races, languages, and so forth, different ethnicities, different animals, I mean, the whole species taxonomy, it's pretty broad, I mean, from amoeba to us. Why wouldn't an all-powerful God have been able to create more than we can see? Because Aquinas and others are always saying, but, you know, our power is weak and so forth. So, of course, it's weak. We can't know more than we know. But God knows everything. And God, you know, perhaps is presiding over, you know, the beings who live on other planets. But it's very important because for thinkers of any stripe to question this and to suggest other worlds, as mm -hmm. it was called, was really verging on, not even verging on, it was heretical. And it's the kind of thinking that could get you killed, get you put to death, because it somehow challenged the existing understanding. It seems to me odd that someone like Aquinas and others like him, who had such powerful minds, I mean, the most powerful minds of, you know, a pretty uh, substantial period of time, could resist speculating. I mean, you have to know that in his bed, when he wasn't thinking about women and touching himself, that Aquinas had to have thought, could there be life on other planets? How could he not? But I guess he couldn't say it. I'm a man that's going bold rapidly. Stephen, you're a, you're a man with a rather luxuriant head of hair. I'm not French, though. Um, no, and you're not, you know, you, you know A.C. Grayling, you know uh, Bernard Henry Levy, but, you know, you Those have a guys. philosopher's head of hair. However, the relative position of bold men as against men with hair has changed over the years, hasn't it, as far as philosophy? It really has, and here I have to actually refer to my own book because there's some detail in what you say that I don't carry around in my random access memory as I move on to my next book and some other things. But this is true. In the year AD 80, Dio Chrysostom wrote uh, an essay called Encomium on Hair. He woke up one morning to find his hair a wild and grievous sight to behold. And, you know, he's having a bad hair day. But he's pretty proud of his locks. And he took the occasion to disparage bald men. 
he says that if you have a well-coiffed head of hair, you are beautiful and you're also terrifying. It makes you potent to have a lot of hair. And he describes Spartans who had long hair and they would, you know, comb and wash and arrange their locks, uh, you know, right opposite the enemy to show them how not afraid they were and that how much hair they had, which of course would make them a deadly opponent, which they were, of course, until they got killed. But the Greek Neoplatonist Synesius, uh, in the 4th and 5th century AD, so several hundred years later, argues for baldness as not only uh, a sign of beauty, but as, you know, an indication of, what do we call it? Machismo. <laughs> he says the bald head is a temple of God. <laughs> so there were these incredible... Th this is one of the fun things about philosophy that... I had chose, when my publisher called, I remember I was sitting in the village of Limply Stoke in Wiltshire and sitting on my bed, and it was early in the morning, and he called me with this, uh, you know, idea about writing this book, and the first thing I said was, can I write an essay about haircuts? Because I was just pulling, he said, of course, and so I did, but, you know, it shows that philosophers can have fun, and that fun is very witty and enjoyable, and in this case, the response comes 400 years later, which is really nice, you know, because... Philosophers worry about important stuff. You know, they worry about war and governing and, you know, all kinds of things. But it's nice to have fun. How can you be that brainy and not have fun with mm -hmm. it, you know? Well, we're about to go as, probably as far away from fun as we can get, really, for this, this next subject, obfuscation. Now, Socrates and, you know, obviously many other early philosophers thought that, you know, the clearer your language was, the better for getting ideas Absolutely. across. So where did that all go wrong? It really goes wrong with Germans. You know, like so many things. In the 20th century, the world goes to hell with Germans. And I don't care who says that's uh, somehow wrong to say, come on, World War One, World War II. So I'm not going to entertain any nonsense about Germans here. When we get to the 19th century, one of the, well, perhaps the really governing tendency in philosophy uh, was the idealism that arose from, from Kant and moved on to people like, uh, well, later on, Heidegger in a funny way, but Fichte and Schelling and so forth. And these people developed, and this is not just a matter of obfuscation through translation, they developed a style of posing problems and offering solutions in a way which is completely unintelligible. Hegel is probably the most unintelligible philosopher ever in the world, and Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish founder of existentialism, you know, completely dismissed him as a charlatan because he had no clue what he was trying to say. And this is a funny chapter which is added late in the book because my editor and I both observed that, boy, isn't it refreshing listening to Plato or Aristotle talk about things? And Hume. But you look at some of these things and you wonder what it is they're talking about. I mean, for instance, Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, famous Nazi philosopher, right? Does resoluteness in its own inmost existential tendency of being itself point ahead to anticipatory resoluteness as its own most authentic possibility? Question mark. What if resoluteness, following its own meaning, were brought into its authenticity only when it no longer projects itself upon arbitrary possibilities merely lying nearby, but rather upon the utmost extreme possibility that lies ahead of every factical potentiality of being of that sign, and, as such, 
more or less entrance without distortion, right? The same sentence. Every potentiality of being of Dasein factically seized upon. Hello? What is he on about? I'll give 500 quid to anyone who can tell me what he's on about. And, you know, it goes on for page after page. You know, there's like 400 pages of that. And it makes you think, though, that we think upon philosophy as, in a way, almost a sacred responsibility. Because if you're going to be rational as opposed to supernatural, if you're going to be supernatural, you can go with your Bible and, and all the exegesis about it, and it, it, it's fine. But if you're going to be rational, you have to, you know, from this time of a turn against theism, you have to prove your point. You have to realize that with, without recourse to a supernatural explanation, that you have an explanation for stuff. But what is he talking about? Mm -hmm. And in my view, I know for a fact that he's very clever and I've read enough to, to figure out what's going on. But most people can't understand it and why bother? And I think he does us, to the extent that I'm a philosopher, he does a disservice to me and uh, all of my friends doing the same job. One of the subjects from the book then, as I walked the, the long route up from King's Cross up to this studio, I was, I was thinking about the importance of walking in philosophy. It's extraordinary how important it is. Aristotle would walk while teaching. He'd walk and talk, and his students uh, would walk along. And <clears throat> actually, this became known as the peripatetic school, mm -hmm. you know, the walking school of philosophy. And it's really remarkable how many philosophers, Emerson, the American, Thoreau, the American, uh, Rousseau, uh, Kierkegaard, the Dane, thought of walking as it's an activity in which your body is exercised, and Nietzsche too, I mean, maybe especially Nietzsche, you know, you are subjecting yourself to stimulation of the outside world, uh, you're looking at things, but that somehow the act of walking and the act of contemplating the beauty of nature makes you uniquely conducive to thought. And it worked for all of these people who are among the greatest philosophers ever, otherwise they wouldn't be in my book. I myself do not share this view. I walked two miles yesterday in Kentish Town High Street, unsuccessfully searching for a brand of shaving gel, and cut myself this morning because I used bathing gel to shave. And I was very annoyed by this. I didn't like the walk at all, except that I felt it was good for me. And it brought back all kinds of memories, like when the IRA left a bomb in the trash bin uh, by Bluston's uh, shop and things like that. But it didn't make me think about philosophy. It made me think about wine. So I went and bought some. But many philosophers do feel that way. And I understand it, I think. When I was young and could still walk and didn't have sciatica like I do now, I walked through the Highlands. I started in the north of England and walked up into the Highlands of Scotland and spent like several months walking around. And it was very beautiful, and it didn't result in a single thing, any thoughts, any words. I think that's a, a fine point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Stephen Trombley. We've been talking about his latest book, which is Wise Words, The Philosophy of Everyday Life, which is out now from Head of Zeus Books. Stephen, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you, Neil. Pleasure as always.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Natalie Haynes. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So you'll remember about a year ago, I spoke to the journalist Jan Harry about his book Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And today I've come to catch up with Johan and see how things have been going over the course of the last year. Recently, the book came out in paperback. So Johan, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, and looking back to the publication of Chasing the Screed, what did you think was going to happen when it was published and how did it turn out? I didn't envisage, I was kind of anxious about it, but I deliberately didn't think too much about what would happen. I just kind of thought, well, what can I do to maximise the chances of its message getting out there? One of the things that's been so interesting about the past, I guess it's been a bit more than a year since we spoke, I don't know, it's also been to loads of different places mm-hmm. talking about it. Um really, really different places. So like one week I was in Mexico City and the next week I was in Brisbane and the next week I was in Germany. And it's been really interesting seeing the different things that people respond to in the book and the different things that are kind of picked up on, the different things that resonate in different places. That's been a super interesting experience because the war on drugs is such a huge thing and it's had such a disastrous effect on such a broad range of people that you can just get really strong reactions to different things in the book. Well, I think the thing that really encouraged me is to know that people are ready to hear a different message about the war on drugs, about the alternatives to the war on drugs, about addiction it was kind of interesting because in Latin America the things that people reacted to were very different so in the US and here the bits that got the most response by far were the stuff about addiction which has been very moving I kind of clocked that very early on I think actually before we spoke I did an event in Baltimore which was a city you know spent time for in for writing the book and a woman came up to me after the event and she, it was filmed, actually, the event. People can watch it on C-SPAN, the US TV channel. A woman came up to me and said, like, my brother had has an addiction problem and I haven't spoken to him in seven years. And I read your book and I'm, I'm taking him out for lunch next week. And I, it kind of helped me to realise that I should be angry at what has been done to him rather than with him. And because, as you know, that you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because we had addiction in my own family and I was trying to think through my feelings about that, about what I could do about that, about how I should think about about that. I remember that night thinking, and I think that was before the Huffington Post piece went went really viral, I remember thinking it was worth it. 
right? It was worth it writing the book. And, I, and then again, you know, there's been lots of kind of swanky things that have happened since the book came out, but the most moving things to me have actually not been the kind of big swanky stuff. For example, in Brisbane, when you do the Brisbane Writers Festival, one of the things they ask you to do is you do a kind of big event and then they ask you to go to a library somewhere, you know, within a few hours' drive of Brisbane, like a small library where they don't get international authors and you just give a little talk there. And I went to this this library in a place that looked exactly like Erinsborough is in my imagination in, from Neighbours. And um, like 12 people turned up. It was one of the smallest events I've done. And I, I, I talked for a little while and then just loads of the people there had read the book. And they started talking about addiction in their own lives or in, in the case of one of them, I think, drug war related violence in their life. And, and they had these amazing stories and they were so engaged. And I kind of thought, oh, wow, I'm... I'm like the furthest I can get on the planet Earth without, without actually, you know, from where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And yet you really see, and I think it's because that message about addiction is that addiction is not what we think it is, uh, which I can kind of very quickly summarise if you want, that we've been told this story, I certainly believe this, we've been told this story about addiction for the last century that's become just part of our, our common sense. And I, I mean, I literally thought I'd seen it in my own family that happened this way. You know, so we think if you'd said to me five years ago when I started working on the book or a little bit less than five years ago, what causes a heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were thick and I would have said, well, clues in the name, right? It's called heroin addiction. It's obviously caused by heroin. And the first thing that alerted me to the fact that something not right about that is when it was explained to me here in Britain or in Canada or a lot of parts of Western Europe, if you get hit by a truck, if you step off a bridge, you step out of this interview and you get hit by a truck and you break your hip, you'll be taken to hospital and you're just given loads of diamorphine for the pain. Diamorphine is heroin, it's just the medical name of heroin. It's much better heroin than you buy at the estate around the corner from here because obviously it's medically pure. And um, you'll get often in hospitals, you're given that heroin for quite a long period of time. So if your nan's ever had a hip replacement operation like mine did, she, she took a lot of heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, what should happen to these people? They're exposed to all the same chemical hooks as any homeless street addict you'll ever see. This has been studied very carefully. Addiction is extremely rare that it would be caused in a medical setting. And when I learned that, I didn't really understand it. And I only really began to understand it when I went to Vancouver and got to know Professor Bruce Alexander. who's an incredible man who did this really important experiment. Bruce explained to me the theory of addiction that we have in our heads you know, the chemical hooks theory comes largely from a series, partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. The really simple experiments, you just get a rat, you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. <laughs> if you do that, the rat almost always prefers the drugged water and almost always kills itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's our story. But in the 70s, Bruce came along and said, well, hang on a minute. We put this rat in an empty cage. We give it nothing to do except use these drugs what would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of coloured balls, they've got loads of tunnels, they've got loads of friends, they can have sex all the time. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course they try both because they don't know what's in them. But the fascinating thing is in Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. Now, there's huge implications for that, which I explore in Chasing mm-hmm. the Scream, obviously. But I think the core of that is about realising that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And it's been really fascinating seeing how that message has, has resonated so widely in, in the US and Britain. So what about the other places that you've been then? So what has the takeaway from the book been when you've been to Mexico or Colombia? 
It was so interesting. One journalist said to me in Mexico, something like, if we ever get to the point in Mexico where the biggest problem associated with drugs is addiction, we'll get down on our knees and thank God. And I thought it was interesting because this didn't get picked up that, as you know, about a third of the book is about this. And it didn't get picked up that much in the discussion of the book that I saw in in Britain and the US. But to me, it's an even bigger moral issue than what we do to... Obviously, it's very close to my heart what we do to addicts. This is a war that is destroying the lives of addicts who could be helped and many of them brought back to us but the violence caused by prohibition is to me the biggest moral issue by some estimates more people have died in the drug war related violence in mexico and colombia than in syria and the only way this ever gets debated i think is in a really bogus way where what happens is you get there was a campaign by the the met or one of the british police forces recently called every line counts and basically what they try to do is they say, um, the only way we ever talk about drug violence is we say, you, drug user in the West, are responsible for this violence in Mexico and Colombia, and you need to stop using drugs. Actually, I think that's a way of rebranding stigma and shame against drug users, and completely misses the point. We don't blame alcohol drinkers in Chicago for Al Capone. We blame the system of prohibition. People want to understand how, just to, to, for us about Mexico and Colombia, so it's important to understand the context. It's actually context is playing out on the streets of London and Salford and other parts of Britain really catastrophically at the moment, actually. If you understand why, when you hear this phrase drug-related violence, what people picture is someone using drugs, losing the plot and attacking someone, right? And that does happen. It's about, there's a study of this, uh, it's about 3% of what's described as drug-related violence. Mm-hmm. The overwhelming majority of the rest is so completely different. If you understand that, it's really easy. Your listeners can do an experiment while they're listening to this podcast if they feel a bit brave. Go into a branch of bins or just any off-licence and try to steal a bottle of vodka, right? If they catch you, the police will come, they'll ring the police, police will come and take you away. So that branch of bins doesn't need to be violent, it doesn't need to be intimidating, because they've got the power of the law to uphold their property rights, right? Now, once you've done that, go and try to steal a bag of weed or a bag of coke. Obviously, if the guy selling that catches you, he can't ring the police, right? Police would arrest him. He has to fight you. In fact, he has to establish his place in the, his neighbourhood through fighting you. As you know from the book, I learned about this partly from the hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, Rosalia Retta, who I got to know, and from Chino Hardin, the amazing transgender crack dealer that I got to know in Brooklyn. You know, you don't want to have a fight every day, so you've got to establish your reputation for being such a badass that no one's going to take you on. And you establish your place through fighting off other dealers in the neighbourhood, right? So the, as Charles Bowden, the brilliant American writer, put it, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs. Mm-hmm. And... This is playing out catastrophically. In Salford, we've just actually crossed the line in that. You've had dealers shooting each other's kids, which we've never had before in Britain. A lot of these stabbings, not all of them, but a lot of these stabbings between teenagers in London are actually that war for drugs, control of drug patch. And if you want to understand how much of this drug-related violence is prohibition-related, just ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers today, right? Just Did the people who work in Oddbins go and stab the people who work in the drinks aisle in Tesco? You know, does the head of Smirnoff kill the head of Heineken? No, but exactly that happened under alcohol prohibition, right? Everyone listening to this has heard of Al Capone. I bet no one's heard of, knows the name of the head of Guinness. You know, I don't know his name. That dynamic is bad enough on a, you know, council estate in East London, where, you know, let's say, two or three percent of the economy might be in the hands of armed criminal gangs. If you're talking about Ciudad Juarez, where I went at the time when I was there, it was about 70 percent mm-hmm. of the economy. So it was this very... One of those movie moments, so in, everywhere I went in Colombia, the book came out in, in Colombia, and everywhere I went to talk about it, I would kind of say to people, the world owes you an apology for what we've done to you, right? Colombia didn't choose this war, Latin America didn't choose this war, it was enforced upon them by the United States. And there was one girl who stood up in, I think it was Medellin, and she said, no one's ever said that to us. We've always thought that we were the people who harmed the world. And it really made me think about how in this war, the stigma all flows the wrong way. Mm-hmm. You know, it all flows towards the users, the addicts, 
the supply route countries. And, and there was another moment in, in Mexico, in, in a, a wonderful group called the Institute for Justice in Mexico did a big launch for the book in Mexico City. And, and um, it, it, there were loads of like, you know, Mexican dignitaries and things like that. And, and, and we did this big launch and a senator spoke and a governor of one of the main Mexican states spoke in favour of ending the war on drugs. Um, at some point I clocked that there were these men with quite big guns. <laughs> so, oh, what's that? And at the end, I said to Sophia, who, who's one of the people who runs Imjust, the, the, the Institute for Justice, what was that about? And she said, um, well, if you're going to argue for bankrupting the cartels, this is the one thing they do genuinely fear, right? Mm-hmm. This is the one thing that actually bankrupts them. This is the one thing that takes the trade back from them. That's a, I mean, I knew that was a dangerous thing to say in Juarez. I wouldn't have gone to Juarez to say that. I wouldn't have gone to, you know, um, the, the kind of worst affected places. But I was I was very struck by that. And it, it's kind of, it, that, that is, that's kind of humbling, you know, when you, you think, well, okay, I'm going to go back now. I remember a, a, about a month later, I was, I was back in the US and just thinking about that and thinking, just thinking about what we've done to those places. If I think about Maricela Escobedo, the woman who I, storytelling chasing the screen of that you know, this or what we say oh but this mother who was searching for her daughter who was missing and the horror that occurred happened to her because of the drug war that to me is the biggest moral issue and so that was the thing that people want to talk about in you know mexico el salvador mm-hmm. colombia and obviously that, that that's the dominating part of the debate as it would be if you know if more than a hundred thousand people had died here in britain in, in the, you know people are dying in britain in drug war related violence as i say but it's not because it's a smaller part of the economy it's a much mm-hmm. less but it's bad and it's getting worse and we need to talk about that here as well. So as well as the paperback coming out about six weeks ago, there's obviously been various foreign editions of the book. And I know, for instance, that the, the French edition of the book, you've written a whole new chapter about the drug situation in France. So as France is so obviously so close to us, what's the situation? Yeah, it was really sad. I did extra editions for France, the French, German and Swedish editions about the about the situation in those countries. And the situation in France really shocked me. It actually got me to think more about the British situation. So France has some of the strictest drug laws in Europe. So drug use is a crime in in France, which is very unusual. And the thing that's most striking when you go there, and it actually helped me to reflect a bit on our situation here in Britain, first thing that's most striking when you go there is, if you go to a place like Sauvignon, which is kind of one of the Bollier in uh, outside Paris, very poor place, overwhelmingly non-white, there's a huge amount of drug arrests, and people are really frightened of the police, and there's a real, you know, spirit of crackdown. And then you go back to, you know, Republic or, you know, the, some of the nice kind of fancy parts of uh, of central Paris and um, people, kind of white middle class people like us, basically think drugs are already decriminalised, mm. right? They're, they're not at all frightened of the police. This really plays out here in Britain as well. Uh, it's something I, I think should be a really big part of the British debate. So the, um, the US debate has really been transformed by many things, but one of them is the fact that it's now widely acknowledged that the drug war is an instrument of racism, right? African-Americans are no more likely to use or sell drugs than any other group, but they make up the vast majority of people who go to prison for it. And as you know, this is storytelling, but, you know, right from the start of the drug war, I tell the story of how Billie Holiday was Mm -hmm. stalked and basically killed by the man who who launched the war on drugs. That dynamic is playing out to a very surprising degree in Britain. A guy whose Twitter handle is Narcomania, at Narcomania, guy who writes for Vice UK, has been doing really good freedom of information requests on the racism in British drug law enforcement, and it appears to be really extreme i remember there was one court in la did i learn about this there was a court in los angeles someone studied the drug arrests between like i forget the years something like 1985 and 1995 and found out that not a single white person had ever been charged with drug offense in that court even though it was in the middle of la and it even affects what we think of as a drug dealer for example two of my nephews go to a, a kind of jewish middle class school in north london 
and there are lads there who sell weed and pills, right? They're never going to interact with the police and they're never going to be classed as drug dealers in inverted commas. And they don't form part of it. If I say to you, picture a drug dealer, you don't picture a yeah, middle-class Jewish boy in Edgware, right? And yet they are drug dealers. They never enter the statistics. They never enter... One of the reasons why it's racist is some of it's actual intentional police racism. That's a big factor. But a lot of it is unintentional. You simply cannot enforce the drug laws against everyone who breaks them. Half of the people of Britain have broken the drug laws. Obviously can't arrest half the people of Britain. It would be logistically and physically impossible. So what happens? The drug laws always and everywhere end up being enforced against the most unpopular groups in that society. The groups with the least economic power, the groups who are most stigmatised by the police, the groups who've got the least legal resources to fight back. So for example, I tell a story in my book about Lee Maddox, one of the most amazing people I got to know for the book, who was a cop in Baltimore... Lee is really not a racist. Lee went undercover with the Klan and risked her life to expose racist violence. And when she was a cop in Baltimore, one of the things that really turned her was realising, ah, we only ever ever arrest black people. What's going on? And even though it wasn't a racist intent on her part, there was a racist effect. It's one of the reasons why she quit the police and changed. So it's one of those things where when you live in the middle of it in London, you don't see it. Mm -hmm. But then going to France, and especially the extremely irritating nature of some of the French professors I spoke to where they go like, I'm having this ridiculous conversation with a supposed expert on this. He's saying like, oh... um, we have no we have no racism in in French drug enforcement. And I was like, oh, how do you how do you know that? And he's like, um, well, it's under our constitution since the Second World War. It's illegal to investigate racial disparities for the state or sociologists to investigate racial disparities. I was like, right, but that's like saying we know we don't have any AIDS because we banned HIV tests, right? That's not an argument. And they go to this long lecture about ah, in France we have a tradition. We had a revolution. You know, basically, you British, you don't understand. It's like what. Talking about so yeah, but I, but but you know it's easy to feel smug about that, but I suspect we're just as bad. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I really think this should be a big part of how we campaign on this in Britain. Not the only part, but a big part. You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm catching up with Johan Hari on his book Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And Johan, let's perhaps look at some of the things that have been going on in the in the wider world of drugs since the, since the book came out. And not least, starting tomorrow, in between us recording this and this podcast going out, the UN have a, a special General Assembly on drugs taking place over the course of the next few days. What's that for? What's going to happen there? Well, this is, I think, a really exciting and important moment. Once every 10 years, as you say, the UN has a kind of big drug war jamboree. And they, up to now, every 10 years, they've always got countries of the world gather and they basically pledge a drug-free world. In fact, at the 1998 one, they pledged that we would have a drug-free world by 2008. I think your listeners will have noticed the success of that, that there are, in fact, no drugs in the world. But it's a sign of how completely untethered from reality the debate has been up to now. They could make such a bizarre pledge. But this week, for the first time in New York, significant numbers of countries are turning up and saying, we're not doing this shit anymore. It doesn't work. It's completely failed. And the alternatives do work in the places where they've been tried. So one of the things I did for a piece in, in the LA Times that I wrote, I spoke to some of the people who were speaking out. Uh, mm. and it was really, I think their stories are really fascinating. So one really relates to what we were just talking about. Mark Golding, who's the justice minister, amazing man, justice minister for Jamaica. It, it's a very similar to what we were just saying. A couple of years ago, he had to make a call 
call that no government minister ever wants to make. He had to ring a woman and tell her that her son, a guy called Mario Dean, had been picked up on the street for smoking a spliff and had been beaten to death. And Mark kind of realised, he was thinking a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement in the months that followed, and, and Mark kind of realised that dynamic about how when you can't enforce the law against everyone, you end up persecuting unpopular groups. Now, obviously, in Jamaica, everyone is what we would regard as black, but the laws were used by the police to just harass young men, poor young men, basically, economically deprived young men. And he just said, well, you know, we can't carry on like this. So he, he championed the decriminalisation of, of cannabis within within Jamaica. He wanted to legalise and couldn't because of the UN conventions, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. So he's one example. Another incredible man called Gingrich Voberil. Uh, I apologise to anyone who speaks Czech. I know I'm saying that horribly but um he's the czech drug minister and he's an extraordinary man he basically grew up on the streets his dad was a kind of violent alcoholic so from when he was 11 he started kind of ingesting any chemical he could get hold of and he had lots of friends who who died the thing that really got him off the path to addiction was he became part of the democratic resistance to the communist dictatorship uh he became part of the punk scene and the, the democratic resistance and when uh, the communist dictatorship fell, was overthrown, he basically set up the first rehab centre in the Czech Republic. And what he found is loads of things he wanted to do that have been proven to save people's lives that I write about in the book, you can't do under the UN conventions. You're actually banned from doing. Quite basic health protection for addicts. So he'll be talking out about what we're doing to addicts, how we're destroying addicts. And the, the other one, uh, again, it relates to what we've been talking about. Mar- Mauricio Rodriguez is the, uh, I saw him, in, I spoke to him in, in Cartagena in Colombia. He, he's the former ambassador to Britain from Colombia. He's a really remarkable person. He's an, an economist. And for him, it's very much what we've been talking about. It's destroyed their country. It's destroyed their country for nothing. We have gained nothing and we have destroyed Colombia. It's one of the reasons why President Santos is speaking out at the UN session. So it's going to be this fascinating moment when you suddenly have... You know, these countries motivated, they all support each other's arguments, but they're quite different arguments, Mm -hmm. right? And yet they're speaking out in this really admirable way. Now, this is taking place in New York. Um, The United States has always been one of the, if not the biggest, cheerleader of the war on drugs. And yet, since the last time this meeting has happened three US states have legalised marijuana. I mean, how is that going to change the way that America goes into these talks? Yeah, it's totally fascinating. There's so many things to say about that. So the US has always been, as you say, the place that's imposed this on the world. There's a great quote when the last time anyone challenged the US on this was when Harry Anslinger, uh, the founder of the War on Drugs, man, who, who story I te- one of the stories I tell in Chase and Scream, someone challenged him and he said, these were his exact words, someone representative of another country challenged him saying this isn't going to work, this doesn't work. And he said, I've made up my mind, don't try to confuse me with the facts. Which I think is like the perfect motto for the, for the war on drugs. So the US is in this really contradictory position, right? They've been up to now one of the main upholders of the, the system. And it's important to explain the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation. So you are allowed under the UN treaties to decriminalise. Decriminalisation is where you stop punishing users, but they still have to go to armed criminal gangs to get their drug. Legalisation is where you open up some legal route to get the drug. Now that's different things for different drugs. Cannabis, you can sell it like alcohol. In Switzerland, they've legalised heroin, but on a medical model. So basically, the crudest way of putting it is that decriminalisation shuts down Orange is the New Black and legalisation shuts down Breaking Bad, right? And you are allowed to decriminalise, you're not allowed to legalise. And of course, three US states, due to rebellions by their citizens, by people I got to know, amazing people in, in Colorado and Washington, mean that those states have legalised and Oregon has now followed. Mm-hmm. So the US is arriving at the UN in breach of the UN drug treaties that they imposed on the world and they uphold. Now there's a kind of contradiction in it, well it's obviously a big hypocrisy, but there's basically different parts of the US 
power structure with different goals. So you've got the huge drug war infrastructure, the DEA, you know, and all of that body, which is still gung-ho, drug war. Uh, I think one of the most scandalous statements by a US official in recent years is Michelle Leonhardt, who was the head of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, until a couple of months back, well, a little bit more now, about six months ago. She was asked, in, when she was testifying before the Senate, about the 60,000 people who died up to that point in Mexico, civilians, innocent civilians, what she thought about that. She said, these were her exact words, that's a sign of success in the war on drugs. And you think, wow, you know, very few ordinary American citizens, even in the age of Trump, would agree that killing 60,000 Mexicans is, you know, progress, right? So you've got that kind of sociopathic part of it that's, that's about, you know, where they've got a huge amount, well, their livings depend on and have a huge amount of investment in maintaining the drug war infrastructure. Then you have the collapse from within, you know, big majority say the drug war has failed. You've got a catastrophic addiction crisis I'm about to go to New Hampshire in a few weeks to talk about this. The, you know, absolutely catastrophic addiction crisis. And you've got you've got a majority of Americans who think the drug war has failed. Big majority now in favour of legalising cannabis. Big majority in favour of pursuing alternatives, although not legalisation, for other drugs. So it's a very contradictory position and no one quite knows. Basically, it looks like the US is going to be pressuring to maintain a drug war that it no longer fights in, mm-hmm. in several parts of its territory, which is really weird and interesting. And of course, it's worth remembering... President Obama used drugs before office. George W. Bush used drugs before office. Bill Clinton used drugs before office. Someone said that the, uh, ca- using cannabis is a gateway drug to the White House. You know, so, yeah, the, the layers of hypocrisy in that are, are bonkers. What do you think the best possible outcome, something that's likely to happen, what, what would the best outcome be at these talks? Well, there's two things that they're asking for, which they're not going to get. And I think it's very revealing they're not going to get it, but I th- still think this is progress. So the first thing they're asking for is... So this this UNGAS is happening two years ahead of schedule because a coalition of Mexico, Colombia and Guatemala, previous Guatemalan government now gone, asked for it to happen early because they're in such a crisis, the violence is so extreme. So there'll still be another one in two years' time. And what all they've asked for, and the dis- other dissident countries like Jamaica, Portugal and so on, have asked for, is let's just set up a panel of internationally recognised experts on drug addiction, on drug-related violence, and all these things, to just look at the best evidence about what's been tried over the world, what works and what doesn't, and then get them to report back in two years to the next UNGAS. Mm -hmm. And I think it's incredibly revealing that the prohibition bloc do not want to look at the facts, right? It's a bit like Harry Anslinger, I've made up my mind, don't try to confuse me with the facts. So you've got this block of Russia, China, the Saudis, Iran, Thailand, South Africa, Cuba, weirdly, no one can quite explain that to me, just saying, no, we will not look at the facts. So that's the first thing they wanted. I doubt they'll get it, but people mm-hmm. will know by the time they, they hear this, but we can look it up, but I don't think they'll get that. The second thing they're asking for is basically the freedom that's been granted within the US. So when the US is challenged about this, what they say is, look, it's up to, we can't tell the people of Colorado what to do, right? It's up to them. People of Colorado voted in a referendum. They voted 55% of them to make cannabis legal. We can't tell them what to do. Different states have to pursue their own approach. And all that Jamaica and none of the dissident countries are saying, Everyone in the world should have to legalise drugs, right? Saudi Arabia has not even legalised alcohol. We're not telling the Saudis to legalise alcohol, never mind anything else. It's just saying different countries should be free to pursue whatever they think will solve this problem for themselves. And again, they're not going to get that. But what we will get at the end of this, and another, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, an advisor to President Santos in, in, in Bogota said to me, you know, they'll, with something like, after this, no one will ever be able to say the whole world is united behind mm-hmm. the war on drugs. That ends this week. And that's a really significant moment. And also, we now have really good evidence about what the alternatives to the war on drugs look like. If you think about the UNGAS that happened in 1998, there were arguments for reform, but they were essentially theoretical. The last time drugs had been legal was 
before 1914. This time we do know, and obviously as you know, I report on the book, and you know what happened in Portugal when they decriminalised all drugs and transferred the money to spend on turning people's lives around mm-hmm. rather than ruining them. You know, injecting drug use fell by 50%, huge fall in overdose, massive rise in support for the decriminalisation, so now it's not really challenged in Portugal by anyone. Or we look at what happened in Switzerland. Switzerland legalised heroin for addicts. You can go to a clinic and be prescribed it. Since then, literally nobody has died of an overdose on legal heroin. You can see what happened in Colorado and Washington. You know, they've raised in Colorado, they've raised loads of money for schools, you know, through taxing it. That hasn't been a disastrous increase in cannabis use. There's been a significant in- decrease in smuggling for across the Mexican border, which will actually genuinely dent the cartels. I mean, obviously, Colorado is a small place. It's also related to the de facto legalization in California. But that's a real dent in the the drug war related horror. So we can see the alternatives, right? We can look at the places that have tried the alternatives. They're doing a lot better. There's still problems and it's important to be candid about that. And then look at places that are cracking down in the drug war. You know, leading the charge for the maintaining and intensifying prohibition at the UNGAS is going to be Russia. My God, I mean, I briefly met Viktor Ivanov, the Russian drug czar, a few years ago. He is real kind of ex-KGB kind of monster situation in russia is absolute health you know mm-hmm. what they do is um if you're caught with a needle they'll charge you under the drug paraphernalia laws so I'm not, this is not their intent but if you wanted to spread hiv that's what you do because of course it guarantees that people will not carry needles so they'll share needles right so basically russia has a catastrophic and rising hiv crisis that's being driven by drug users which is very unusual because mm-hmm. obviously Almost everyone has sex, and even in Russia, relatively few people use drugs. So the HIV crisis is just disastrous, and there's very little treatment, so it's, it's a death sentence for a lot of people. So yeah, those are the people... We can look at the record of the people who are cheerleading the situation, and they've got a horror show going on in their countries. I think after that, we should probably finish on a, on a positive. You, throughout this book, throughout Chasing the Scream, you talk to lots of interesting and heroic people that are either affected by the drug laws or are trying to do something about it. Somebody you've met subsequently that isn't in the book but is fighting the good fight is an Australian doctor, Alex Wodak, is it? Mm. Tell us about him. He's such an... One of the most amazing experiences about this whole process of writing Chasing Scream and then talking about it to so many people has been meeting so many people who've risked so much, who've lost so much, who've given so much in this fight. One was Alex Wodak. So... Early in the AIDS crisis, Alex was a doctor working in, in King's Cross, which is a kind of notorious part of Sydney. It's um, like the old Times Square in the 70s or something, you know. And he realised very early on that it was going to rip through two groups and spread through them out into the wider population. One was gay men and the other was um, intravenous drug users. And it was obviously known what to do about gay men, distribution of condoms and awareness about, about them. At that time, there wasn't that much known about what you could do with intravenous drug users. But Alex was very prescient in seeing that if you distributed clean needles, people would be much less likely to share needles and therefore you'd have much less transmission. And so Alex, along with some other people in in King's Cross, started to distribute clean needles, which was illegal. There were drug paraphernalia laws that meant that you're not allowed... It was regarded as facilitating drug use and enabling drug use and all of that stuff. So Alex gets lots of threats from the police and he said, no, I'm saving people's lives. I'm going to carry on doing this, whatever you say to me. And he got called in to see the Minister of Health. And they said to him, if you don't stop doing this, we will arrest you and you'll lose your medical licence and you'll be put on trial and you'll go to prison. And Alex said, fine, put me on trial. I'll explain to a jury of 12 ordinary Australians what I'm doing and what you're doing and we'll see who they side with. And Alex got in, he left the meeting and he got into the lift and the public health advisor who'd been in the meeting, who hadn't said much, got in the lift after him and he just said to him very quietly, 
whatever you do, don't stop what you're doing. And because of what Alex did, it demonstrated that needle exchange worked. It demonstrated that this was a way to reduce the AIDS crisis. So obviously it saved huge numbers of people in Australia, not just the intravenous drug users, but obviously intravenous drug users have sex with people who aren't drug users and it would have spread out much more widely. It did that, but also it demonstrated that this worked, along with some programmes in the Netherlands and in Frankfurt. And so he saved an enormous number of people's lives. And he's just a lovely, humble, good man. And he's actually now, Alex is still doing amazingly pioneering work. He's pioneering in Australia, going to music festivals and doing uh, testing on things like ecstasy tablets and recreational drugs that people use, because obviously you can test it for known toxins. And obviously you can stop people dying if you test them. And again, same threats, right? Um, I haven't spoken to Alex since he started doing this, so I I don't want to speak too much about it. But, you know, same threats, same dangers. And and there are loads of things like that that are playing out. It is a scandal that in Britain we don't have any safe injecting rooms. Everywhere where safe injecting rooms have been tried, two things have been shown absolutely conclusively. This is as solid as the evidence about penicillin, right? One, far fewer drug users die. And secondly, no more people become drug users. It doesn't increase drug use, right? That is totally robust. And there's this movement in Brighton. Caroline Lucas, the leader of the Green Party, is wonderful, doing amazing work on this issue. And to credit them, I don't like them as much as politically, but the Lib Dems have been actually doing really great stuff on this as well. And Norman Lamb, who I was speaking to recently, has been doing really admirable stuff on this. And, you know, I, think, I almost think, I was thinking about this the other day, how would I try to talk to people about injecting rooms? You know, I wouldn't even talk about the technocratic stuff about saving people's lives. I think it comes back to a much more basic thing. Do addicts' lives matter or not? Do we want them to live or do we want them to die? Because I actually think there's a kind of implicit stigma that's like, well... Maybe they should pay a price in inverted commas for what they do. Maybe they should suffer, which is based on a completely ridiculous idea about addiction that they're using because they're suffering, right? They're, if you're an addict, you're using because you're in terrible pain and you mm-hmm. can't bear to be present in your life. And, and that actually seems to just as kind of last thing about the, I think of all the people I've got to know in the last, whatever it's been, year and a half, I just kind of thought it's so moving to be part of a movement with people like that. It's so moving to be part of a movement. It's so moving to see these people all over the world, people like Alex just selflessly trying to save people's lives. There aren't that many things where if you make a relatively small change, you can save enormous numbers of mm-hmm. people's lives, right? And I was trying to say, I spoke at the, the launch for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition in the House of Commons uh, about a month ago, and I was trying to say it to the politicians there. This is something where you can do a relatively small change and you can just save so many people's lives and so many vulnerable people's lives. I'm really optimistic about it. Some of the political movements I support, I'm not that optimistic about. This one, I really am. We can end this when we do that we'll be really glad we did so i've been catching up with johan harry on his book chasing the scream the first and last days of the war on drugs which is out now in paperback from bloomsbury johan thanks again for taking us through it hooray and did i say people can get it for three pounds on the kindle for like a short period and so my publishers keep jabbing me with an electric prod if i forget to say that and um if you want to listen to the interviews with the people I talked about, like the hitman for the Mexican drug cartel or Bud Osborne or those people, you can hear them at the book's website, which is www.chasingthescream.com. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.